we've officially begun. If I had a <laughs> a clapper, a clapper. Well, welcome to episode one of our podcast. Here we are going to be exploring dance communities, dance education, all things creativity and motivation. I'm your host, Hallie Matheson, and I'm going to introduce you to our next guest, Lindsay Viatori. Would you like to give a little introduction and hello? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Lindsay Viatori. I live in the United States in Western Pennsylvania, just north of Pen- just north of Pittsburgh. And I am an associate professor of dance at Slippery Rock University, which is a state school in Pennsylvania. And I teach many different technique courses, lecture courses, composition courses for the university. So thanks for having me. Fabulous. Thank you so much for being a guest on here, Lindsay. To get started, I'm going to throw a bit of a broad question at you. I want to know how you define the word creativity. That's a difficult thing to really narrow down into one specific focus. For me, I guess I can only speak about my own creativity and and the way that I view creativity. But creativity is just the way that you choose to frame your own world and the way that you choose to make that world what you decide to make it. So I like to think of creativity in a really broad sense and then allow my kind of musings and things that are, get exciting to me to start to define it and define it and to find these ways to see how that broad way of looking at the world can start to affect all of the little changes in the ways that I like to make in art making. But I don't necessarily think that creativity is reserved just for artists. I actually think that creativity is, it's in all of us. Every single human being has a creative spirit and how we choose to enliven that spirit is up to each one of us. So that's kind of how I view creativity. I don't know if that was even a, a distinguishable answer <laughs> for your question. I think that was very profound, to be honest with you. I love your definition of it kind of stemming from personal practice and embracing the world around you. It seems like you view creativity as a very inclusive thing. Mm-hmm. I've had different experiences with, with creativity where it's felt very isolated, where I've been the, you know, for lack of a better word, this like recluse in a room, just holding myself away, trying to create this, whatever I'm, I'm working on. But I actually don't find that to be the most productive. I feel that every creative process can use moments of that kind of isolation and and separation from the outside world. But I, I really think that inviting others in, but also inviting yourself out. So, so thinking of, I like to think of a creative experience, almost the way that we look at the linings of cell walls, that some are permeable and some are not permeable and things can come out and go in. So how can we let our creative spirit out into the world so that we're, we're not existing in a bubble, but then how can the world come into our sphere and affect us and how we decide to then take what the world is giving us and let that, let that inspire us to make something different. So I, I actually, as a dance artist, um, most of my inspiration and most of my excitement for making and, and creative practice does not come from dancing or dance making. It comes from 
almost everything else outside of dance making. It's just that dance making and choreography is the medium through which I can make the most sense out of the world. But that doesn't mean that that's my only way of being creative. That's just my own professional artistic practice, if that makes any sense either. <laughs> Absolutely. And don't worry, it does make a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, good, good. Sometimes we get scared that, you know, our ideas and our thoughts are a bit hard to interpret. But I think that as, especially as educators, when we can share those thoughts, we're almost opening up the world to students and helping them to discover where their practice sits as well. Absolutely. And I think for me also as an educator, I, and, and I know that this saying seems very cliche, people use it all the time, but honestly, my students are oftentimes my, my biggest teachers as well. And I am inspired by their way of thinking and their creativity. And I'm sure it's reciprocal. It's just this continuous reciprocal approach where they're inspiring me to change the way that I am, you know, exchanging information with them. And then my exchange of information for them is changing the way that they view the world. So it is a very cyclical process and, and almost the same as that cellular wall idea that there's a there's an even exchange, there's a give and take that happens between between all parties, especially in an educating education setting. Yeah, definitely. Do you find a lot of times using analogies like the cell wall helps you when explaining things to students or even explaining your practice to others? I, if you spoke to any of my students, they would, yes, <laughs> I am full of analogies and metaphors and imagery and those types of things. Um, I remember learning early on, and I think this happened even before I learned this, but really learning the different, the different modes of learning, that there are kinesthetic learners, visual learners, um, readers, you know, um, people who learn by doing, people who learn by seeing, people who learn by trying. And I, I have learned that oftentimes it's not describing something in such detail to make it clearer. But offering another way to see it using an analogy or using a metaphor that sometimes allows students um, or anyone really to just kind of open their understanding and real and again that's one of those ways that the outside world and the different all different influences can change the way that we see the world and it might not be directly related to what it is that we're researching or discussing or working on but that those influences can change the way we see things so you know, often I'll use I'll use um, imagery of nature, imagery of really grotesque things, like just anything. You know, I use really, really weird imagery when I'm teaching dance. <laughs> like, I always tell my students, imagine your body is a jellyfish. If you've ever seen a Portuguese man of war underwater and the way that it moves, I want your arms and your body to kind of fill up that water and move in that way. Or, you know, when you're spiraling your heel forward in a tondu, um, imagine that someone has taken a spike and spiked your foot to the floor and your heel spirals around. I mean, the images are gross and disgusting and strange and, and wild, but I sometimes find that those images, um, when those images are given, students connect with them more because it's outside of what of what we're actually doing and so sometimes those images are really helpful so finding different ways for different people to connect is is i think very important 
Well, we should have a competition to see Lindsay's most grotesque image. <laughs> oh, I have some. I have some pretty gross ones, so <laughs> I'll save those for another time. There's something really fascinating about you know noticing that sort of imagery, though. So I think that's a really good way to further the the language, almost, mm -hmm. the imagery. So when you were training, um, back to your own story. Did your teachers typically approach teaching in that way by providing a lot of imagery? Or do you think that's something that you needed in a way? You know, oh, it feels like ages ago. I know before I went to college, before I went on to dance in higher ed, I don't think that there was a lot of imagery used. When I went to college, that's where I think imagery was first introduced to me as a, as a student, and I found it helpful. But then I think I kind of took that idea and I think I did run with it. And I don't know if that's because I found it really helpful that those images really stuck with me, um, but I ran with it. I also find that a lot of, a lot of teaching can be, for lack of a better word, it can be very problematic because we just keep passing on the things that were taught to us and maybe they weren't effective. <laughs> Those modes of disseminating information weren't the most effective way. And so I think for me, imagery is a way to step out of that history of those those ways of passing on information that maybe is outdated or not useful, or some people find it useful, but not everybody connects to it. So how can we get everybody, everybody in the room, because not everyone in the room is going to learn in the same ways. So kind of when you were talking about being inclusive, what about the students that don't relate to any of these historical ways of teaching that's not in their cultural identity that's not how they understand movement maybe nature is an easier way for them to understand maybe a completely different image about another cultural component is a way for them to enter and to feel seen and to feel welcomed into the space so not to feel excluded because it just keeps it just keeps repeating those old ways of saying, which might not invite everybody into that space in the same way. That kind of uh, leads into another question I have um, regarding safe dance spaces. Could you tell me a bit about what is a safe dance space for you and maybe something that you might do to create safe dance spaces? I think uh, for me, safe dance spaces shift depending on what genre or aesthetic I'm working in, but many things for me that are necessary in all of them is a space where I feel seen. This would be me as a, as a student. So this is what I try to foster in my, in my own teaching. A space where I feel seen and where I feel safe to make mistakes. I think a lot of that was missing for me when I was very young, this, this feeling of it's okay to make mistakes. And so I really try to create an environment where I tell, I, I try to communicate with students that a dance technique class, if we're thinking specifically a, a movement practice, a dance technique class is really a movement laboratory. It's really like going into chemistry and putting two compounds together and seeing what happens that this is kind of like a kinesthetic physiological laboratory where we sprinkle artistic sensibilities into it. And you have 
to fail. You have to fall. You have to take risk. You have because you'll never know how far you can go if you don't go too far. And I think a lot of dance, in particular, um, education has historically been founded on this idea of perfectionism and perfection seeking, seeking an ideal. And so for me, taking away, there is no perfect in dance. I, I, I find myself saying that over and over again, there is no perfect in dance. So stop trying to reach it, just keep trying to better yourself. And there's something beautiful about that, that you'll never be done learning because you're never gonna reach perfect because it doesn't exist. So I consider myself still a student as well. Yeah, so, and I think that's both daunting and really freeing at the same time, that this can be a lifelong pursuit because you're never, ever going to completely master it because there will always be something that's developed, that's shifted, that's changed. There will be new ways of making, new ways of, of teaching and moving. And I think that's exciting that I could spend my entire life dedicated to this and I'll never reach knowing everything. And I think that's awesome. I really like for students particularly to feel that they have a voice and that their view and their ideas are valid and that they have, they, I actually, I, I wait a little bit into a semester. Um, so for your listeners who aren't from the States, most universities in the United States work on two semesters of fall and a spring semester. And um, each semester is 15 weeks long. So I usually let a week or two go by before I ask them to give feedback to others. And I'll ask them to give feedback to themselves. Think about this. How did this work? What could you fix? What could you change? What did you do well? Um, and then I start to pair them up and I, and I let them give feedback to others. And then I let them give feedback to the entire class. And that all feedback is valid because there is this old kind of antiquated way that the teacher is the master of knowledge and they're the only person that can be giving this information. But I just don't think that's entirely true. I think I'm more like guiding their experience, but allowing them to also, you know, these students are really bright. So let them make those discoveries in real time. So I think being seen, being feeling free to make mistakes, um, and having a voice are really important. And those three are just like completely paramount to how I teach. But then I think in um, like more creative classes, like a composition class or an improvisation class, I'm really interested in what students are interested in making and, and why. And then I'm also really interested in allowing them to dig as far as they can in that realm, but then challenging, well, what does the opposite of that look like? So that there's a way of not feeling that you're just pigeonholing yourself into one way of doing, but inviting lots of possibilities. But I, I really want students to first discover what it is that they like and keep un opening doors down that you know, rabbit hole hallway of what they're interested in, because um, that's, I for me, that changes every couple of years what I'm interested in making and what I'm interested in discovering. So allowing them to kind of also go on that journey as well, and that nothing is off limits. There's nothing that's off limits as far as what they want to investigate. I know a lot of people like put restrictions on what students can do, but I kind of find that 
if they're interested in something. I do like guidelines and limits because oftentimes when you have just anything at your disposal, it's daunting. There's just too much to contend with. But when you put little rules or limitations on what you're making, you start really getting creative in how you're going to work within those set of rules, which I think is really exciting. So it's learning how to break rules, learning how to put rules into place, but really feeling that no matter what you choose, that all of those things are valid and that it really still is exploratory and that mistakes are going to happen. And that's how you learn. You seem like a very democratic educator, <laughs> like a facilitator instead of, I mean, still an educator, but a facilitator in the classroom instead of expert in the classroom. You know, I try, I really do try to be because I, and I've had students that really dislike that. I actually have had students that are like, I wish you would yell at me. I wish that you would be harder on us. I wish that you would. And I, that's just not what I really value. Um, I have really high expectations. I don't think that's, I don't think that is something that doesn't stay, even though there's a, a democracy to the way that I run my, my classes. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I found whenever I left um, my undergrad program and went out into the real world is I didn't really trust myself. I didn't trust that I was ready to be a professional and to perform and to make work because I actually didn't get a lot of time to talk about what I thought and how I felt and what I wanted to do. And I think that that's why it's so important for students to start to voice their own opinions in their own aesthetics and what they like and what they don't like and how to talk about things and how to make those kinds of determinations because there's a confidence that's built when you when you really take ownership of of that type of learning and, and that type of process and I think that's really important definitely do you find that those students who dislike your modes of teaching do you find that you can reach them throughout the semester or even throughout the program or do you find that it's a bit of a block and kind of like a pushing pull so far and i guess i'll never really know because i'm not inside <laughs> inside their head but so far i think most students really just want to continue what they're used to there's a comfort in in continuity and if they had an overbearing teacher who was really strict and who would yell or who would, you know, like be very intimidating, that's comforting to them in a way. And they feel that that is the only way that they can make progress. But I think what, what's been helpful for me is students see their own progress and they, they begin to witness the development of their own artistry and their own personhood over time. And then they, that's one of the things that's really important about being able to evaluate yourself and others is that when you see it, then you're not relying on me anymore as sole expert to give you permission to be incredible and to be an awesome dancer or you know artist you you start to see that for yourself and you can start to kind of take ownership of that and start to understand that you do have a say and you you don't need i always say i wish we didn't have to give grades i just think that grades are you know, and, and I always joke, I probably shouldn't say this, but like, is anyone really looking, is anyone really looking at what you got in like comp one on that first assignment? Like Nobody's looking. And I say, just fail, just fail, not fail the class, but like if you go for something and it bombs, 
I guarantee you, you learn from that. You learn from that, from that making something that just didn't work out and was really frustrating, you learned. And that's way more valuable than playing it safe and getting, you know, this grade that you think is really important. So I just, I, I do find over time that students, they do respond. They do respond to it. And I think it actually puts the onus more on them than on me. It, it it allows them to to have more responsibility for their learning than on me that it's really up to them which is really true <laughs> i can't i can't make artists they make themselves right that would be really narcissistic <laughs> to think that it's my doing <laughs> i'm gonna switch the topic just a little bit here i'm still building on some of these ideas but now, I want you to tell me a bit about some communities that you felt have supported you in your practice, either as a, a dance practitioner, because you've done so much work, or as a dance educator. The first community that I would say has been really supportive are my colleagues and coworkers. Um, my colleagues and coworkers at um, Slippery Rock University are really awesome. And what I love about our department is that really none of us have the same aesthetic <laughs> no i don't think one of us actually has the same aesthetic but we all value what the other ones are doing um and we all kind of champion each other's creativity each other's research um pedagogy those types of things and that kind the other thing that i love about this this cohort of colleagues is that there's so much freedom to do whatever I want, right? So the classes are prescribed and that there are outcomes for the classes that we're doing, but they are also modeling this idea of, yeah, try it. How would that course go if you ran it that way? And if it doesn't go well, it's just like what we do for our students. If it fails, you go back and reassess. How can we do that differently? But having that kind of freedom kind of actually links back to creativity in a way that I feel that I can be creative in the way that I deliver my um, courses and the way that I deliver information to students, the way that I decide to design a 15-week course. And it's really nice to feel that there's that freedom, but there's that support. It just always feels like there's a safety net and a community of people that is there to help if ever, you know, if ever I need anything. For my outside of the university for my performing and choreographing professionally. You know, I think it's really important that we all find our tribe, so to speak. Our, our tribe kind of shifts and changes over time. But really finding the people who don't have an ulterior motive, but they're just, they want to see you succeed having someone that pushes you, you know, says like, jump off that high dive. You have to take that risk. That's a job. That's a job that you should go for. Um, those, those little like creative angels have been in my life pretty much since, since I left my undergraduate program. Um, and then there are some friends that I've had, you know, one of my closest friends, she and I, we joke over COVID, we started what we call a book club. Um, where we've actually read books, but we never talk about these books. We just FaceTime every Sunday for about two and a half hours and <laughs> talk about everything. Those relationships are great because she knows me really well. She was, you know, we were 
classmates. She was my boss. We were um, professionals together. And so finding the people who know you really well and know when it's time to like use kid gloves and when it's time to really challenge you is important. Sometimes it's not the people that you want in your circle. It's the people that you need in your circle that are really going to, it's it's kind of with my teaching when I have students give each other feedback. I said, I don't want you to give feedback to be nice. I want you to give feedback to be honest and to make improvement. So how can you find those people who are going to be nice with how they give you honest feedback? And I think that's important. Definitely, especially over that period of, you know, isolation and quarantine mm-hmm. and improving mm-hmm. that practice through such a strange sort of situation. I think that's a really important quality that we've had. Yeah. And having people that are that genuinely care about you and your happiness and your um that if your goals shift and change, that they're really giving you the advice that's championing your best interest, not what another group or or someone else views as successful or necessary, or this should be the next step or lucrative or whatever. But that it's really, I like to think of like each artist, if you're an individual artist, you're almost your own business. And you think about if, you know, in non-for-profit businesses, you have to have a mission statement. Well, as an artist, what's your mission statement? And have, like, create your own community, which becomes your own board of directors, <laughs> who is holding you to that mission statement and checks in. Do you, do you Is what you're doing still aligning with the vision that you have for yourself and your goals? And if not, how can that, you know, community board, I use air quotes board, if we're using that analogy of a non-for-profit organization, how are they helping you reach reach that mission statement or shift, shift your mission statement? I think that's, I think it's important just to have people that genuinely are happy when you succeed and are championing you even when you falter. They're not just there when you're successful, but they're there for the, for the duration, for the long run. Well, speaking of being there for people, if you were to be there for a group of emerging dance educators, you know, and you had your whole life experience behind you, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to people like myself who are just going out into the world now? Oh, gosh, I have so many things, (laughs) so many things I would say. I think the first thing is never, ever, ever stop learning. Never. I am like a self-proclaimed dance nerd. I read all the new books, dance theory, articles, you know, everything that, that comes out. And I think it's really important so that we don't keep, you know, dance oftentimes in hierarchies and systems, you know, systems of power, it's, it's really common for things to just stay the same because that's traditionally how it's been done. And I think it's really important as educators that, that we challenge why, why, like, why are we still doing these things? And, and what purpose does this serve? And, and kind of questioning your approach to pedagogy, constantly asking yourself to, kind of, again, look at your mission statement as an educator. What do you believe? What's your what's your educational philosophy? And then revisit it every year or two and say, do my values still align with that? And if not, how do I shift? It should evolve. I just think that um, oftentimes 
I hear people say like, oh, it must be, it must be so great to have this like stable teaching job where you're teaching the same thing. Like you probably just are getting so comfortable with it. You don't have to change anything every semester. And I'm like, I change my class every semester, every semester, something's different. I would get bored if, if I didn't, but you know, the world keeps changing. So it seems strange that we wouldn't change with it as the world changes, that we would stay the same. Another piece of advice that I would give to upcoming educators who are going out into the world would be know how to set healthy boundaries. <laughs> healthy boundaries are really important because this is something that we're all passionate about. We love dance. We love, you know, art. We want to teach this. It You can really let your job become everything and then you... I don't know, go into a spiral of workaholism that is just because you love it, which is wonderful. But the other thing is kind of like that cellular wall. What from the outside world are you involved with to give you that perspective of what you're bringing into the classroom? And if you're so insular with being an educator that you're not going out into the outside world anymore because you're too busy taking on a million things, you're actually limiting what you're able to give to your students. So yes, that means time for Netflix binging and time, time for, you know, like a spa day or whatever is going to make you feel, you know, not like a, an artist or an arts education person, but like a human being, because ultimately you, you're a human first before before you're an educator. And with that, something that I've actually had to learn, I don't know if this is just a personality trait, so I'll share it just in case anybody else has this. I used to have a lot of anxiety around, am I giving students enough? Am I teaching them enough? And like, are, am I preparing them enough for the, to go out into this field? And what if they get out there and I haven't done enough for them and they, you know, and, and they're ill prepared and they're not dancing at the level that they should be dancing at. And ultimately what I learned is that's not my job. It's not my job for them to, to be hireable right away. I can only give them the information that I give them. And then it's really up to them to take it and, and use it. You know, we're collaborating in this space but I can't be giving 120% and they're giving 75 and then I feel bad when they're in the world operating at 75%. That's something that I've really had to work on for a long time is kind of like, you know what? I can only do what I can do. And I, and I don't actually, that's also narcissistic. Like that's a weird thing to think that what I, what I'm doing is so important that they like, how does that affect their lives? And I really had to start thinking in a different way that, um, that is a really narcissistic way of thinking that I don't actually have that much power or control and it's freeing. It's really freeing to say you that's hold out your hand, but they've got to take it. They've got to take it. I think another thing too is allowing yourself every now and again to look back and see the actual change that you've made. Because I think it's really easy to to get on that like steamroller of a of a ride where you're just pushing through and you're like go, 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 go. And you don't take a moment to step back and see all that 
that you and your students and everybody has been able to accomplish and what's changed, um, that those moments are really important too, because that gives you the motivation to keep to keep going. And, and it shows you that what you're doing is valuable because oftentimes it's difficult to see in the everyday. So those would be like some big ones that I would recommend. Never, ever, ever stop learning. The learning just literally never stops. <laughs> and find your own community. Surround yourself with um, people who are going to challenge you. You know, I think, I think sometimes um, people, you know, we all want to feel good about ourselves. This is something I always laugh at with my students you know they come into class and it's time to get ready and if they're flexible they just start doing like flexibility moves <laughs> like if they yeah and if they're like really strong they're over there doing push-ups and you're like you know we all want to do what we're good at <laughs> like maybe let's let's do some things that where we where we need to focus our attention and I think the same goes for educators like where do we feel like we might have some blind spots or where might we have some holes in our understanding and fill those with people who are going to challenge you and inspire you to make that kind of change because there are tons of people out there who are inspirational and finding them and following them and you know letting them impact the way that you're impacting others I think is really important choosing your critical friends in a way choosing your critical friends and maybe even people you don't know or might not ever know but you you know see them online and what they're posting and what they're you know maybe you're reading their work and it's really incredible and then you just start you know following them on every social media platform possible and then you just end up you know being super transformed by this person's research and the way that they're existing in the world I think it's quite beautiful that we have that availability, that we can follow these people on social media. We can keep up with what they're doing easily. Absolutely. That we had 20 years ago. So Absolutely. You know, I it just makes me sound old and like, <laughs> like from the from the stone ages, but I always laugh because I'm constantly telling my students I seriously, there was no internet. Like I went to college. <laughs> I went to college in 1998, I was a freshman, like the internet was not anything that you could just log on and look things up. This was just, it was a very different time. And I think, oh my gosh, had I had that at my fingertips when I was in college, I would have just been like reaching out and looking at everything. Just I mean, my eyeballs would have been glued to YouTube channels for hours. <laughs> I would have been like obsessed with watching what was happening, you know, particularly in the dance world at that time. But, you know, we all waited for the VHS of whatever company was going to release whatever piece that year. And then we'd all like, you know, huddle around a VCR and television and, and see what happened. But technology is really incredible. And, and social media in particular, when used wisely, right, is really incredible. You can connect with the people who are making moves in whatever field you're in very easily and you granted we all have to realize it's highly curated and it's not it's not really like exactly how the world is is functioning but it really does serve a great purpose you can you can find that inspiration and that is like that cellular wall looking on looking on um different social media platforms and being inspired by others that's letting the world in in other ways too. So it is, it's incredible. It's an incredible time that we're living in that so much is so accessible yeah. so easily. 
Absolutely. I feel like I could talk to you all night, but I know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I am like, I am just so passionate and nerdy and I love speaking everything, dance, art, education, community. It's, it's just, you know, it's, and I, it's moments like this that make me really grateful that I'm in the field that I'm in because to be this excited about what I do is, is pretty awesome. So you gave me a gift today. So thank you oh. for that. I had the incredible opportunity to hear some lectures from you and to work with you. And I know we never got to move in the studio together, but that impacted me in a big way as well. You know, oh, you were chatting before about, you know, um, not always seeing the impact that you have, but you've impacted me and continue to impact me. Um, and this has been an incredible conversation that will further continue to impact me so I can't thank you enough for you know being a volunteer today too oh my goodness my pleasure we don't we don't know the impact that we have whether it's positive or negative like we we don't know the impact that we have on people um but every single human being is is changed by relationship and I think that's really important um that's also something that I feel that I really try and instill in anyone that comes through one of my classes is, you know, you are a human being first and kindness and empathy and understanding. And that goes a really long way. And that exists in every field and kind, nice people, (laughs) genuine, you know, genuine. And there's a reason why when you're in the field long enough, you feel that you're just surrounded by those types of people but those people continue to make impact. So I feel very fortunate that you are in this community as well, because I can only imagine the impact that you're having on others because you've already impacted me. Oh, well, we're just getting started. So I think I'm off to a good start if I've impacted you as well. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to be using your cell wall analogy from now on. Go for it. It has to be permeable. You need you need to be a permeable human. I think that's that's really important. If we could all be permeable, wouldn't that be beautiful? What a beautiful world. Oh. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today and being my first guest here on the podcast. I'm going to bring today's interview to a close, though I've still got so many questions, so we might have to do a round two sometime. <laughs> for today's listeners, I mean... Wow, what a great first session to be tuning into. There is so much to learn from great educators like Lindsay, whether that's unpicking creativity, creative practice, identifying different modes of learning information, such as utilizing imagery, or building yourself up through supportive communities. At the end of the day, what makes this all so special are the resources that we have to share this information. So I hope that you'll tune in to the rest of my episodes in this podcast series, where we can truly discover what it means to foster creativity in students and ourselves, and to build a community that can support each other as emerging educators, as established educators, just as artists and creators. My name is Hallie Matheson, and thank you for tuning in to Fostering Creativity and Building Community, a dance education podcast. I hope you all have a lovely rest of the day. Happy teaching, of course, and I'll speak to you again soon.